Jesse, I have a question for you. Go for it. So I know from Twitter that you are taking piano lessons. And here's my question. Is it solo lessons like you and a teacher or is it what I hope it is, which is a class of first graders and then you towering over them? Have you seen the documentary Billy Madison? I have, yeah. Yeah, it's basically that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I found a very nice local teacher who would actually come to my place and we are progressing into some introductory blues work. I've got the blues, Katie. Have you mastered the entertainer? No, I definitely could not play even a really dumbed down version of that yet. It's like (laughs) before I started the lessons, I bought, I didn't know what book to buy and I actually bought one for kids. So like every every, every song was titled like The Forgetful Rabbit, (laughs) (laughs) The Mischievous Buddy. Are you going to incorporate some of uh, your piano skills into your rap career? Definitely. There's definitely that. I also, it My dream situation would be like two years from now, I'm good enough to do like something we could somehow incorporate into the show, but it's definitely going to take at least that long. Absolutely not. Katie, I've written such good songs about podcasts. I have have the podcasting blues. (laughs) This in theory will um, keep me off Twitter a little. I also did it in lieu of video games. I was worried I was going to get addicted to video games and, and learning piano. It's sort of the same structure of like you get addicted and you make progress, but it feels like, um, no offense to the gamers and the game creators out there but it feels like less of a waste of time do you have an actual piano or is this like a little like one of those cardboard pianos they use in prison it's surprisingly inexpensive to get a keyboard with weighted keys that feel for for my introductory purposes it it sounds like a piano so i did that well i look forward to you releasing your blues album i got those bitchy lesbian co-worker (laughs) blues Yeah, it needs work. Well, it's good we could laugh because this is not going to be a very funny episode. Oh, great. Katie, what soon-to-be-less-cheerful podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And uh, today we're not really going to talk about internet bullshit except in a sort of tangential sense. We're going to talk about the Jacob Blake shooting. I'm familiar. Yeah. and um, Am I familiar? That's the question. <laughs> Ooh, I'm familiar? Question mark. So imagine if there were a podcast called like – your uh this is off the top of my head you're incorrect about great title yeah so imagine there's a podcast called you're incorrect about that looked back at previous media stories and tried to explain why people are incorrect about them that we're gonna sort of do that today and i could definitely hear people being like why this happened 15 months ago or so it's like got a lot of attention and you're talking about the shooting itself not the uh not not the the kenosha protests and riots or not Kyle Rittenhouse, but yeah, the actual shooting of Jacob Blake. Um, And I sort of fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole because I did write and talk a lot about the Kyle Rittenhouse. Was rabbit hole on those lists of of terms that you're not allowed to use anymore, according to the CBC? I think it might have been. I didn't see that. What's wrong with the rabbit hole? You didn't see this? No. I tried, Katie, you know what? I'm here covering substantive public policy debates and you're just off... And, you know, outrage stories, which I would never be interested in. So here's a few of them. Uh, Sorry to derail this. Brainstorm. What's wrong with that? Some people have storms in their brain. (laughs) Like epilepsy? Yeah, I guess so. It's the... First of all, we're completely derailed. I'm trying to set up a podcast with some gravitas, but so they're literally like this word that means one thing could be misinterpreted if I decided it meant something else as meaning another thing. Yes. Okay. Well. Yeah, there's a bunch of other ones on this list: grandfathered in, uh, lame, first world problems, weird animal. But unfortunately, rabbit hole is not on it. So I guess you're permitted to say the word. Okay. Well, that's a relief, but. 
anyway, I fell down a rabbit hole because I was like thinking and talking a lot about the the Kyle Rittenhouse case and. It's kind of unavoidable. If you look into the Kyle Rittenhouse case, you're going to end up looking into the Jacob Blake case because Jacob Blake's shooting and paralysis at the hands of police led directly to the unrest in Kenosha and that led directly – Well, they did kill him. (laughs) That's part of the problem. Some people – Sorry. I know this is like a common thing um, that a lot of people have said is that Jacob Blake was killed. You see that pop up a lot. That's – he was not killed. He was paralyzed. That led directly to Kyle Rittenhouse crossing state lines. Uh, coming to Kenosha where he killed two people. It just, it sparked a lot of horrible events. And to sort of understand what happened uh, with the Rittenhouse case, you have to go back to Jacob Blake. And that is this awful, awful video in which you watch a dude get shot in the back. So after this comes out, basically our entire general side of the political divide like decides that this was a horrific, unjustified shooting that that laid bare all of the racist flaws of the American justice system. And this went right up to the point of Democratic presidential candidates rushing to chime in on Blake's behalf and, and Kamala Harris meeting with his family with Blake joining by phone. I mean, you remember this initial sort of flurry of response to it, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was uh, people were convinced that this was a wrongful shooting. Um, A lot of people were convinced that he was dead for some reason. And uh, everything that happened afterward, concluding with the the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict a couple weeks ago, stemmed from this this one video. So I basically just ended up like doing a deep dive into trying to understand what happened. And I mean, we'll get to this, but I promise you, if mainstream outlets had done their job, I wouldn't have bothered to do this so many months later. But I I don't think they did. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what happened and what didn't happen. I'm not trying to pretend I like went to Kenosha and re-interviewed witnesses and started from ground zero. Mostly, I just watched the available video a lot and and read these two reports published about the shooting. And I also talked to uh, a couple police use of force experts, one who wanted to stay off the record, but uh, another who we'll get to who was on the record. And and this just turned out to be profoundly depressing and disturbing. Uh, how so, Jesse? The, there's just a lot of evidence that the shooting was justified and that we've built up this whole mythology around a case that shouldn't be treated the way we're treating it. And if you look at the actual facts of the matter, there's very little to hold up as evidence the police really did anything wrong here. Uh, can I do some very neurotic and nervous throat clearing before we proceed? It's complicated. Just say it. I mean, it is complicated, but I, I just sort of want to be clear that like um, there is a long history of police killing people they shouldn't kill and beating people they shouldn't beat. And there's also a lot of uh, history of police lying, especially when they have a chance to get get their stories straight together and to like coordinate their stories to avoid accountability. This is all pretty well known. Uh, and I, I've written about this stuff. I have a book chapter about the super predator scare, about how salacious media coverage led people to treat 14-year-old black kids caught in the drug game often as um, as amoral monsters, as killing machines. This contributed to laws that would sometimes send them away to jail for decades or for life. Uh, I also have like a little bit of a some personal reasons to feel a little bit skeptical of cops in general. The the minor one is my my brother has had his car tossed by state troopers on road trips a couple times. So just like 
I'm sure this has happened to a lot of people. But imagine you're a kid from Massachusetts. You're driving through the South. You're pulled over, and a state trooper is just pouring through your car trying to find something to get you in trouble for for bullshit reasons. On one, well, he does have long hair. He does have long hair. He is a dirty, a dirty Yankee hippie. But um, on one occasion, they. They told him that they had found trace amounts of weed in the front passenger seat or the front driver's seat. I forget which one, but they were just going to let him go, which was just totally made up. It was actually a new car. He had never smoked weed in it. So I, you know, that happened. I, and more importantly, my mom was actually assaulted by a cop when I was no much way. younger. She was. And we got a payout from from my hometown. So Whoa, what's the, can you tell us the story here? It basically involved – she was out with our dog at the time, not far from my house, at my elementary school, and there was a dispute about whether the dog was properly leashed. And from her point of view, this guy – he was not in uniform – just rushes up to her and starts basically I'm, – I'm, there's a chance I'll get little parts of this wrong because I this is from memory – basically grabbed the leash and sort of started choking the dog and she tried to get the dog back and he eventually wrestled her to the ground and arrested her and there were bruises. Oh my God. And and <gasps> my parents took photo of the bruises. This was like a small but, you know, big local controversy just for complicated reasons, but they eventually gave us a payout. Uh, and my attitude has always been that if that can happen to an affluent white lady in a nice suburb, I mean, what happens to people who don't have the resources we have to defend ourselves? I mean, what if that had been it and she'd been charged with resisting arrest and had a – I mean, it's just – it's sort of infuriating to think about. And this is a side note, but I've always found it silly that we pretend that the only people who really have a stake in police acting decency uh, are black people because I think they're disproportionately affected. But I think especially in lower-income communities – and we've talked about this uh, – there are there are good cops. There are also a lot of cops who act like assholes, and there's some horrific stories out there. So uh, did I throat clear enough, do you think? One other thing I think that we might want to mention here is that some of this stuff, yes, not besides the fact that cops do lie, some of this stuff is also systemic in the sense that cops are oftentimes – tasked with investigating their own when there's something like a police yeah. shooting. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, so the, the way some internal affairs investigations work, there's this whole idea of like, you know, like members of other groups, cops stick together and try to protect one another. And that has led to really uh, horrific excesses. So there's a, an, an entire word for it. The blue wall, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's... um. It's sort of annoying I have to I have to do this throat clearing, but hopefully, I don't know, that I the, the point here is not that I think that we should defer to cops or believe cops. I think we should be very skeptical of anyone who has that kind of power. But um All right, so Jesse, so let's move on to what happened. So everything I'm about to say, or almost everything, comes from two documents we'll link to in the show notes. One is an independent review of the shooting conducted by Noble Ray. So Ray was hired uh, as a consultant. Uh, There's an announcement about a month after the shooting by the state attorney general and the Kenosha District Attorney's Office. He is the former police chief of Madison, Wisconsin, and he has sort of a miles-long resume when it comes to police reform efforts. Uh, the Obama White House appointed him to an important uh, effort on that front. So he he's the independent reviewer. He's the guy, you know, he is a police officer, but he also has a background in, in reform and use of force efforts. He's the guy who's going to try to get to the bottom of what happened. The second document, which actually draws significantly from the Ray Report, is called the Report on the Officer-Involved Shooting of Jacob Blake. That was prepared by the Kenosha County District Attorney's Office. The point of that document is to say, here's why we made the decision not to press charges. 
And that same decision not to press charges was made at the federal level by the Department of Justice. Uh, They just announced that in October. Okay, so everything that follows comes from those documents. And I'll, I'll try to make it clear who said what when or who believed what when. And Jesse, just to be clear, you think that we should trust these reports? I think that's something that people will naturally ask. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think our stance should be skepticism when it's cops writing about cops. The reason I think we should trust these reports has to do with like basically with what the cops say happened lining up with the available video and physical evidence. In the case of Ray, Noble Ray, I would trust him more than I would like a random cop aside to this because he has a prominent position, not just as a former police commissioner, but as a police reform advocate. And I just... I do think that in as politically white hot a case as this, he's going to honestly report on what he found. But of course, your mileage may vary. And we are relying on two reports from folks from the law enforcement world. Is he black? Noble Ray is black. Yes. Not that. Katie, why, Katie, why would you bring race into this? Come on. Here I am in my color, colorblind world. But is he politically black? People... Pete, listeners should know that whenever I mention any name on the show in any context, Katie goes, is he black? <laughs> I always say he, no matter what the pronoun is. Um, yeah, Noble, Noble Ray is an African-American gentleman. Uh, okay, should we get to August 23rd, 2020, the day of the shooting? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. According to Jacob Blake himself, he is at the apartment of Laquisha Booker. Booker is the mother of his kids, and and depending on who you ask and, and what source you're relying upon, either his girlfriend or his ex, more toward ex, He's been staying there about five days, he said, and he's grilling hot dogs to help celebrate one of his kids' birthdays. Soon, there is drama. And this probably wouldn't be a surprise to anyone who knew Blake and Booker. Uh, To call the relationship over the years tumultuous would be a serious understatement. Back in 2012, Booker called police to report domestic assault. And as they responded, Blake took her car keys from her, sped off in her car to flee from police, and crashed it. There was also a later incident. Here's a direct quote from the DA's report. On May 3rd, 2020, Jacob Blake had broken into her residence at the address, and Laquisha Booker told police that Jacob Blake had sexually assaulted her and then stolen her car keys and her vehicle and her debit card. So by the time they're hanging out on August 23rd, he has a warrant out for his arrest as a result of these charges. And he has a history of stealing her car and fleeing from the police. And and according to her, of of assaulting her, uh, there's a, a ch- mention yeah. of choking and yeah, sexual assault. Okay, so they're still hanging out despite this. Yeah, I mean, so this is where I, I don't want to really pass judgment or speculate. They're clearly yeah. not a happy couple, but I I do think it's not uncommon for women who accuse men of domestic assault to still hang out with them for complicated reasons. Love is complicated. Love is complicated. Kids are complicated. Family is complicated. Um, okay, so so according to to um, Jacob Blake, he's he's hanging out. Part of the reason for their hanging out is a birthday celebration, although there's also that mention that he's been there for five days. So it's a little bit confusing. But the point is, it isn't unlike some rumors I heard later on that he's like going there and he's just not supposed to be there full stop. It looks like he was there and she was okay with having him there to a point. They start to fight though. And, and the fight seems, according to Blake, the fight is that she tells him that she's been sleeping with the neighbor's husband and Blake is basically like, okay, I don't care. But then Booker is mad that he's not madder. Were you able to follow that? Yes. Uh, is this reliable? We don't know. So no one's ever been able to get Laquisha Booker's side of the story other than like a couple of really brief interviews right after the shooting. She just stopped cooperating uh, with law enforcement. This is noted in 
either one of or both of the reports. Okay, gotcha. So they start fighting. Things escalate, and Booker eventually calls 911 at 5.10 p.m. She mentions rental uh, car keys. She has a rental car at the moment. She says Blake won't give the keys back, that he's trying to hurry up and leave, and that he's probably about to go crash the car, which he's done multiple times before. He's crashed numerous of my vehicles in the past, she says. That's a direct quote from the report. And and it's very important throughout this whole thing to keep in mind what the police officers knew and when they knew it, because that's going to come into dispute later on. Here is what is passed on to the responding officers via the dispatcher. Jacob Blake is not supposed to be there because that's what Laquisha Booker said. Blake is the father of the caller's kids. He's also about to leave, according to the caller. Most importantly, they're told he has a warrant out for his arrest. Uh, I think they're just told he has a warrant, uh, but the warrant was for trespassing, disorderly conduct, domestic violence, and felony third-degree sexual assault. And is that all in relation to Booker? I believe it's all in relationship to Booker. And as soon as they hear he has a warrant under under sort of Kenosha police policies, they have to arrest him. If, if you're a Kenosha cop, and I think this is common, and you encounter someone with a warrant, you have to take them in. You have no discretion about whether or not you do so. Gotcha. So at 5.13 p.m., just three minutes after the 911 call, officers Rustin Chesky, this whole thing's going to mostly center on him, and Brittany Marinek arrive on the scene. They see a man fitting Blake's description carrying a small child toward a silver car. According to both officers and uh, eyewitness reports, as Chesky arrives, he and the witnesses hear Laquisha Booker yell something along the lines of, here he is, here he is, he's trying to take my kids and take my car. So she mentions right away that he's trying to take the kids in the car. And I I, I use the word like she yells something like because these are direct quotes not from video but from from witnesses. So they might be not 100% accurate. Officer Shesky walks directly toward Blake, and Blake says something like, I'm taking the kids and I'm taking the car. Shesky approaches. He says, let's talk about this. So Blake puts one kid in the car and turns to face Shesky. Shesky says that at this moment, he later says to investigators that at this moment, he sees Blake glancing around for an escape route and believes he's going to bolt. So Shesky grabs Blake's arm and tells him he has a warrant. Uh, This is another crucial moment, so just keep it in mind. Blake doesn't want to be arrested. He says something like, don't do this, bro. Don't do this. He tenses up and he makes it harder to handcuff him. He begins resisting. So Marinek and Chesky both report seeing Blake reach toward his waistline area, which suggests there might be a weapon there. Chesky also later says that he realizes that at this point, like, oh, shit, this guy's a lot stronger than me and that he sort of lost control of the the situation physically. So Chesky... Eventually, during this this period, he tases Blake from about five feet away. Blake just pulls the wires from the taser probes out. Uh, Shesky later says he's never seen anyone do something like that before. Uh, the other officers join in trying to subdue Blake. And according to Shesky, he and Blake get each other in headlocks behind the SUV. They're wrestling. Shesky tries to take Blake to the ground, punches him in the stomach twice, holds the taser directly to Blake's neck and back. And um, Blake continues resisting. So Blake is able to break free and he moves toward the rear passenger side of the SUV. Uh, This other officer on the scene, last name Arenas, he tases Blake again and again it doesn't work. Shesky and Arenas again try to subdue Blake. Blake again frees himself. At this point, Officer Marinek notices that Blake has a knife out and yells, knife, knife, he has a knife. Um... The officers step back sort of toward the sidewalk from where they are and they yell, drop the knife and show your hands and so on. And this is sort of a key moment because it does show that when they saw he had the knife, they they created space, which according to the report is like 
what you're supposed to do to give yourself more options, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Blake would later say that from his point of view, he just wants to get in the car because the kids are in there and he wants to get away from the police. And he also says that he wants to put the knife away in the car because it's a gift and it means a lot to him and he doesn't want to lose it. Um, so he, Blake walks toward the front of the vehicle with the knife in his left hand and there's no dispute. He has a knife in his hand at this point. Cause this was also, you know, captured on video. And, um, this moment when Blake has a knife in his hand and he's walking toward the car, trying to get in and drive, drive off is a crucial moment for officer Chesky. He later tells investigators that he decided then and there that he could not let Blake get into the car. As far as Shesky's concerned, this could be an attempted kidnapping. Uh, and if Blake leaves, it sparks a high-speed chase involving a kid in the car. And it's probably worth noting here that like, if our goal is to understand the cops' mindsets, that in April and July of 2020, there were police car chases in Kenosha County that led to fatal crashes. So, uh, yeah, you can see why he would want to avoid Jacob Blake driving away at all costs. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the question of, like, why why are you engaging with him so physically after he's thrown you off? I mean, part of it is is they have to arrest him under the rules. But in terms of why you would aggressively try to stop him from getting in the car, you just need to think about the alternative, which is a guy getting in a car with kids that aren't his own from your perspective. You don't really know exactly what's going on with a kid. You know that LaQuisha Booker said he's taking the kids. You don't want to get in a high-speed chase with this guy driving kids around. It, it could be obviously dangerous to the kids. So Shesky decides, I'm not going to let this guy go away. And Jacob Blake reaches the driver's side door to try to get in. Arena and Shesky close distance. Shesky grabs Blake's shirt as Blake reaches into the car. This is the moment I think everyone saw on video or, or a lot of people saw on video. We'll include a still of the video of this precise moment uh, in the show notes. But but you, I mean, you remember this, right? Of him sort of walking away from them and that's when the shooting takes place? Yeah, he's grabbing the back of his shirt uh, there's two police officers that you can see, and you can see that one of them has a gun up to him. Yeah, yeah. So they actually both had their guns out, but one of them it's obscured by the car door. And um, this is basically the one part of the encounter where there's a little bit of, of factual uncertainty. I, I think a little is the right way to describe that. So we, we do know that Blake, Jacob Blake raises his arm toward his chest level. So picture a guy trying to get into a car with two officers gun drawn very close to him. One of those officers grabbing him by the back of his shirt and he's reaching up with his arm sort of back toward one of the officers. Jacob Blake says he's just trying to drop the knife inside the car and that he did not hold it in a way that could be fairly construed as pointing at or threatening anyone. But Shesky and Arenas, on the other hand, as well as two eyewitnesses, claim that Blake was twisting his body towards Shesky with the intent of stabbing him, or that it looked like he was trying to stab him. And are these two eyewitnesses, these aren't cops? or are these They're not cops. Okay. These are bystanders. So we have Shesky and Arenas and two eyewitnesses. They all report the guy with a knife in his hand trying to get in the car is twisting an emotion back towards Shesky as though he's going to stab him. Got it? Okay. Yep. Arenas, the other officer, actually says he wanted to shoot Blake at that moment, but he lacked a clear shot. And you can see that from the angle that the car door is blocking him from, from shooting Blake. Shesky does have a shot and he fires. He, he shoots seven times in two and a half seconds. And that's the horrific video we all saw and, and immediately reacted to because it looks horrible. Blake drops the knife and collapses. Shesky immediately checks in for more weapons, lays Blake flat on the ground, and provides first aid. Okay, so we have two different accounts of whether or not he was trying to stab Chesky. 
What does the video tell us? The video, unfortunately, doesn't really tell us much. Here, here it might be useful just to read directly from the DA's report. Jacob Blake is leaning forward so his head cannot be seen. His right hand also cannot be seen due to the door, and any view through the window is blocked by Officer Arenas. Clearly, both officers were positioned to see Jacob Blake twist his torso and move the knife towards Officer Chesky, if that did indeed occur, but the car door and the positioning of Officer Arenas prevent the video from capturing any such movement. Is there any other way to to figure out who is telling the truth here, the cops or Jacob Blake? So I think, you know, I do think the eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts are not perfect, but I think they lend some weight. But there are a couple other things. Um, One is the wound pattern supports the cop's claim in the sense that four of the shots hit Blake's lower back, but three hit his side. And that supports the idea that he's twisting the way he'd be twisting if he was trying to stab Chesky. There's also sort of the more... um, general issue of Blake's overall honesty. Because remember, he's already making sort of a weird claim here because he has he has refused to drop the knife as cops with guns out have asked him to. And he said he he's going to wait to drop the knife until he gets to his car because it's a keepsake and it's important to him. It's just, I mean, I'm not wrong that that's a little bit weird, right? Yeah, it's just, uh, that's hard to believe. And, and I, I think the other sort of knocks against his credibility just come from other aspects of his interview with investigators. So he's, he's interrogated after the shooting, you know, once he's, he's stable and recovered enough. And he claims the whole thing started because this cop shows up and is trying to detain him and he doesn't know why. And that's why he freaks out and, and fights him off and tries to flee with his kid. He's trying to make the case that like, why is, why are these cops putting their hands on me? Okay, so he says that he doesn't know why the cops were there or were hassling him, but surely he knew that there was a warrant out for his arrest, right? Well, that's the thing. Like he he claims he didn't know, but the problem is investigators found out that on July 14th, Blake sent Booker text messages referencing the warrants, and on August 7th and 9th, so that's just weeks before the shooting, he looked up his warrants on online court records. Okay, gotcha. So he's lying. Or hey, maybe he's got uh, epilepsy-induced memory loss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but joking aside, even if it was a memory issue, that would also mean he probably can't accurately remember his intent with the knife. So either sure. he's lying or he doesn't have reliable memory. So either way, he clearly knew he had the warrants out. Um, on the matter of of him swinging the knife at the cop, there's another bit of relevant evidence here. But it's sort of so crazy that if someone put it in like a crime movie, you'd you'd be like, this is a really shitty script. What's that? So according to a report from the Cook County Sheriff's Police Department, on August 5th, 2010, Blake had a traffic stop where he struggled with officers, slashed at them with a knife, shouted, come on and shoot me then, and was ultimately tased and taken into custody while actively resisting. So this is a habit. It's, I mean, I think probably waving a knife at cops once is a bad idea. Twice, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like wave a cop, knife at cops with guns drawn once, shame on, I, I don't know, man. So I, I tried to be open-minded and to understand that position of having cops like, you know, really aggressively trying to detain you. But at a certain point, common sense has to kick in with regard to like whether we believe Blake's account. He had a knife in his hand. He wouldn't drop it. Cops and witnesses said he made a stabbing motion towards a police officer. And he had done that before. He had waved the knife at cops before. So I just I don't think Blake is an honest guy. All right. So where does this leave us? So because of all this, no one, none of the police are charged with anything. The um, the, the case against Blake himself for the charges uh, that that's pled down because Laquisha Booker won't cooperate, or at least that's my understanding of why it was pled down. But both Noble Ray and the Kenosha DA conclude, in effect, that um, if the authorities attempted to prosecute the cops, 
the case just would be unlikely to succeed. And and there's sort of these precise legalistic reasons why their use of force was justified that are clearly laid out in the reports. But the point is that uh, as a DA, as the DA explains, prosecutors aren't supposed to try cases if they think there's insufficient evidence they would win a conviction. Although I would question how closely that is followed in Kenosha County uh, due to recent examples. Right. And did Jacob Blake, did he receive money from the from the county or the city? This is one aspect I did not look closely into. I know there is at least one lawsuit um, going on. The, the headline I'm seeing from June 25th, 2021 is Kenosha officials reject Jacob Blake's damage claim. I think there's some other, this one I would just point people to Google because I just did not look into that part of it. Gotcha. Okay. And I don't know if people remember this, but the in the immediate aftermath of this shooting, the narrative that I saw online was that he was there trying to break up a fight. Do you remember that? Yes. And I think this stems from the fact that as he started fighting with Laquisha Booker, there was some other third party involved in a dispute uh, that maybe at one point during the buildup, he's trying to mediate something. But the, ba- the the narrative that he got arrested for trying to break up a fight, which was repeated or endlessly. Shot for shot trying for trying to break up a fight is just complete nonsense. Now, there was some nonsense that some mostly the right spread. And that was the idea that that the he was called just for being there when he was there grilling hot dogs for a while. So there was some misinformation on both sides. But that idea that he was shot or attempted to be arrested for trying to break up a fight, which you still see is just like completely wrong. Right. It's more likely that he was shot because he was attempting to kidnap a child, flee from the police, and then stab them. And and I just want to be clear here because like any – it feels weird to ever – it's like a really big deal for cops to shoot people. And I, I don't want to give the impression that any of the stuff about his background or his past criminal charges justifies this. If the cops had rolled up and shot him because he had a warrant out, the cops should spend the rest of their lives in jail or, or decades in jail. But the point is this this snowballing series of events where they try to arrest him and he resists and the taser doesn't work and he has a knife and he doesn't respond to their commands. I mean, again, at a certain point, common sense has to kick in. And to say that Jacob Blake at multiple points could have prevented this from happening, I don't think that's to say that anyone's happy he was shot and paralyzed, but it's just like, I, I don't really know what else they were supposed to do, if that makes sense. I wonder if resisting arrest ever works in the resistor's favor. I mean, if you get away, it does. I, I, I That's my question, though. I wonder how often people actually get away. Yeah. I mean, probably not often. I, I can definitely understand why people resist arrest in situ because there are situations where cops will just roll up and try to arrest people. In New York- and, and people also just don't want to – like, even if you – have a warrant out for your arrest, even if it's justified. People don't want to be arrested. Yeah, which is understandable. Uh, I, I would guess that as a tactic, it has a very low success rate. Um, so, so that's where things left off legally. I, I think there's some pending civil stuff, but no one, no one pressed charges. The DOJ didn't press charges. Uh, there, there were no real realistic charges to press. So, Everything I just said aside, it was really important to me that I tried to understand like the arguments I was missing. It made me pretty nervous that I swung from like, God, that shooting looks horrible. Clearly, there's something else they could have done to concluding like basically the opposite, that it was justified and that I can understand why the officer fired. And um, I, I ended up reaching out to a few organizations. Specifically, I contacted both the ACLU of Wisconsin and the main branch. And that's because after the Kenosha DA announced there'd be no charges, 
The main branch issued this statement from Chris Ott, who is the executive director of the ACLU of Wisconsin, uh, reading in part, We are disappointed that instead of holding police accountable for another example of their repeated use of excessive force against people of color, District Attorney Gravely declined to charge Officer Rustin Chesky in the shooting of Jacob Blake. This continues the cycle of enabling police violence and evading accountability when they seriously injure and harm a black person. Based on the video footage of the incident, it remains hard to see any reason to shoot Mr. Blake in the back repeatedly. Well, do you think that's a good argument that the problem wasn't that he shot him once? The problem was that he shot him seven times? No. uh, This is addressed in the reports, too, because that's part of the question of whether they use excessive force. So basically, cops are trained to shoot until the threat is neutralized, and the available evidence suggests that – well, not suggests. There were 17 uh, bullets in the clip. I wanted to say rounds in the clip, but I'm so not fluent with gun talk. Let's just go with bullets. There were 17 bullets in the clip, and – investigators found it was still loaded with 10 bullets. He stopped shooting after Blake dropped the knife and was slumped over. So he, he, that was the basis for deciding shooting him that many times was necessary. And this is one of those areas where, uh, as, as cop skeptical as I am, and as much of a, a feet wimpy gun hating liberal I am, I do think people sometimes misunderstand this because two and a half seconds is not a long time to determine whether or not someone still poses you a threat. So I think sometimes, why did he have to shoot him so many times? The answer is simply you keep shooting until you are sure that the threat has been neutralized. Gotcha. I mean, I would imagine that there's not much actual thought that goes into the process. It's probably at that point automatic. You're running on adrenaline. Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. And I, I just think if you're going to make the excessive force argument or that he was trying to do as much harm to Blake as possible rather than protect himself, why wouldn't he have just kept shooting? Sure. Um. So – I guess what jumped out at me about the ACLU statement is that that last line of based on the video footage of the incident, it remains hard to see any reason to shoot Mr. Blake in the back repeatedly. That's just not really true if you've read the report explaining why they didn't press charges. Like, we we know why they shot him in the back. That's sort of a Weasley lawyer move based on the video footage of the incident. Um, Well, it shouldn't be based on the video footage of the incident. It should be based on the whole picture. Yeah, it's only it's only hard to see the reason if you leave out the fact that like the police had very good reason not to let him get in the car and the fact that there's very significant, albeit not dispositive evidence that he tried to stab a police officer and completely dispositive evidence that he was told repeatedly to drop his knife by officers with guns drawn and he refused to do so. So if you just ignore the whole snowballing turn of events, then yeah, if you just watch the video, it looks bad, but we already knew that. So... I, I was just frustrated, not for the first time, by the ACLU uh, recently, and they they just sort of completely ignored the the existence of these two documents that explained in detail why what happened happened, and they're basically saying this cop should be charged, which, you know, you are talking about potentially throwing someone in jail for a very long time. I thought that was um, not responsible, so I, I reached out to them to try to get them to comment or connect me with a uh, an expert of their own. And did you hear back? I did not hear back. I, I tried both the Wisconsin branch and the national branch. And I tried the national branch because they put on their website the statement from the Wisconsin branch, which seems to me like an endorsement. Uh, just, for, just for the hell of it, I included Anthony Romero on my request for comment. He's like the head of the ACLU, uh, hoping that maybe that would spur them to get back to me. But it did not. But Anthony Romero, come on, bar pod. Let's talk about this. You know, I've had that experience with the ACLU of Washington and the national ACLU several times. They just don't get back. Yeah. And I mean, I, so I made it clear. I wasn't coy with them. I said, like, I've talked to use of force experts, which we'll get to in a minute. And I've reviewed the documents and I, I just want to make sure we're not missing something here. So I 
I, I think I specifically said something like, I don't want to tell tens of thousands of people this was a justified shooting if it wasn't. But um, yeah, no word from the ACLU, which is frustrating. And you reached out to a couple of other people, right? Yeah, one was just sort of a, a fairly well-known use of force expert, just just recommended to me from Twitter. We had, we He wanted to stay off the record. He basically said he didn't see how it was an unjustified shooting based on the facts he was aware of. Um, but more importantly, I reached out to the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. That's a public university in New York City that's you know centered on law enforcement issues. I asked if they would put me in touch with a use of force expert who could sort of provide a, a third party view of this case. And they hooked me up with a guy named uh, Professor Keith Taylor. Um, He's really impressive. I'll just read a few lines of his bio. Keith Taylor is an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Law, Political Science, and Criminal Justice Administration at John Jay College. Native New Yorker, he served as a public safety professional for 26 years, retiring as an assistant commissioner. At the NYPD, he was inducted into its honor legion for performing an act of bravery at imminent personal risk. That's how I feel every time I do this podcast with you. Ooh, I hope that he uh, jumped onto a subway to save someone. I should have asked him about that when I talked to him, but... um. Uh, so yeah, he 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 was promoted from undercover narcotics detective to detective sergeant, and he supervised internal affairs, missing persons, SWAT team. Uh, he's done a lot of cool, impressive stuff, and he also uh, earned master's degrees from City College of New York and the Naval Postgraduate School, as well as a doctorate from Columbia University's Teachers College. So uh, he's a cop, and that will certainly give him a particular perspective given his experience, but he's like a really highly decorated and very smart guy. Uh, when I got in touch with him, he had not read the reports, but he, he quickly caught up. And we just had a conversation about sort of, you know, what he thought of the case. Here is Professor Taylor talking about the general situation the officers faced. Well, if you don't have any discretion in terms of what you can do with someone who's a must-arrest because of a warrant, you cannot let this individual walk away or drive away. The introduction of a deadly weapon by an individual, the knife in this case, means that decisions are much more precarious for that officer. The introduction of the knife now endangers that officer, and you have a third party, the child, the officer doesn't know if this is an abduction or not. So all these things are building up to lead to a severe confrontation. Ultimately, this individual is not going to be allowed to go and whatever means are necessary, particularly if there is a weapon that he is threatening to use, are going to be used to detain him. That all adds up to that calculations officers make in their head very quickly as to what options are available. Less than lethal was tried and unfortunately did not succeed in stopping this individual. So, you know, there are very limited options left. So when a, a person comes towards an officer with a knife, the officer is going to respond with their gun. He also introduced me to this very useful concept. Uh, I don't think I'd heard before. H had you heard this lawful but awful? No, never heard that. Here's what he said. It's lawful but awful. It's awful to look at, but it's lawful. And any kind, of, any kind of skirmish involving someone in uniform and an individual citizen, there tends to be the presumption that this individual is being wrongfully arrested or beaten, even though people don't necessarily understand what the real issues or causes are for that situation to occur. I thought this was really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that it's it's tied to what we said on our initial coverage uh, 
on <laughs> an episode we did about Kenosha and Jacob Blake. So basically our attitude was like, this looks so bad. There must have been something the cops could have done differently. Cause in the, in the video out of context, it, it just looks like they're shooting him in the back and that jumps off the screen at you. And you can watch that video and have no idea that there's a knife there and that he's probably attempting to stab an officer. Um, I think we're, I think I should go back and just put a, a thing before that episode saying like, listen to this one instead. We don't stand by all of that. How much do you remember of that episode? Um, I don't remember it at all. <laughs> <laughs> My memory only goes back one week. It, I, I listened to it last night and a lot of it was not great. We were basically speculating about a situation where we did not have nearly the full details. And uh, hopefully we're correcting that there. But I, I don't know. I guess it just gets to that question of like, if you feel like you have to have an opinion on something that just happened. Right. This is always a problem. It's a problem in, in on Twitter. It's a problem in media where something happens and everybody jumps in immediately to uh, to give their opinion as though your opinion really matters. And I remember this not just in terms of the Jacob Blake case, but even more profoundly during the Jess- Jesse Smollett case, yeah. uh, where there was especially like you and I were in the back channel being like, this sounds shady as shit. But it was very hard in that moment to be the person saying, wait a second, this like, let's not even this sounds shady as shit, but like, let's just take a beat. Freddie DeBoer has a great essay called, of course, there's a back channel that talks about exactly that, uh, of these situations where a lot of journalists know or think something is askew, but don't want to say so publicly. But in this case, we, we, I think we thought something, that video looked horrible just because we didn't know a bunch of pertinent facts. You know, also like there is just in a situation like this, like the stakes are so high or it feels like the stakes are so high that, that being the person to say a shooting is justified, it doesn't feel good. Yeah. Well, that that sort of gets into like the other reaction I had after um, Professor Taylor told me about lawful but awful. And that is that, you know, so he's basically saying if, there, if, there's, if people see the cops hurting someone, they're going to assume the cops are the bad guys. And my response is sort of like – I think our stance should be one of skepticism whenever the police hurt someone because like police are sanctioned by the state to carry guns and to enforce law and order and they're some of the only people who can legally kill other human beings and get away with it. So I don't think the issue is is being skeptical when they use lethal or, or other force. I, I think it's just there should be a very healthy impulse that, and we should always loudly question police use of force policies as well as individual incidents. But the problem is – there are some cases, like he's saying, where stuff looks awful, but it's lawful. And and I think when we come across those cases, we have an obligation to say so. Right. I, I completely agree with you. I also, you know, remembering what the atmosphere was uh, last summer in the wake of the George Floyd killing and then this, you know, defending the police, especially a police officer who shot somebody in what looked like the back seven times – uh, was just like guaranteed to make you very, very unpopular, at least within like lefty media Twitter. Yeah, no, and that's absolutely a potent force. So that's got to be that definitely affects how you decide how you feel about something. Just seeing all the other people chime in on it and not wanting to be on the wrong side of it. Yeah, the pressure to conform. I uh, I wish we hadn't given in uh, last <laughs> last year, but I guess we did. Won't be the last time. We love conforming. Well, do you think that's what happened? Do you think it was social pressure that made everyone in media misrepresent this case? Yeah, and and I think that pressure to conform has led to some really horrible media coverage of this that has caused a lot of people to probably just not know the basic facts about what happened. Uh, Including apparently our own until now. (laughs) Should we do housekeeping and then get into that? 
Yeah, sounds good. Got a much needed break. It's a heavy episode, but uh, Blocked and Reported, that's uh, that's the name of our podcast, right? Indeed. You can email us, Blocked and Reported Podcast at gmail.com. We have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Blocked and Reported. Anything else? Yes, we have a subscription program. If you go to blockedandreported.org and give us just $5 a month or $55 a year or more if you want to, you can get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. We do lots of other fun shit. There's a very robust comment section. Uh, we do periodic gatherings where we can all get together on a Zoom chat and Jesse and I will shit talk each other for a couple hours. Uh, we have a merch store. There's a link to it at blockedandreported.org. Please join us. It's a great and growing community. We need to schedule one of those by the end of December, uh, which we will do. The Hangouts. Oh, should I, can I do a quick pitch for the call-in thing? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm also uh, – I launched a new thing on a, a social podcasting app called Callin, C-L-L-L-I-N. You basically, you take calls from listeners. It's like Clubhouse, but different. Just go to the webpage. You'll see it and check me out on there. I basically, I've been laboring under Katie's oppressive shadow for too long. No one knows who I am. Everyone knows who she is. And I need to, I need to leave the nest. The baby bird is, is trying to, I'm hurtling toward the concrete and hopefully my little wings will carry me aloft. What's going to happen is that you're going to, at some point, and it, hopefully it will be soon, you're going to host one of these shows and all of your enemies are going to call in and start just defaming you. And I can't wait until it happens. I know. I literally tried to make that happen. I One of my first episodes was only call in if you disagree with me because I was hoping I'd... I think one of the uses of that platform is like disagreement, but everyone who had a gripe, almost everyone was like, Jesse, I'm a big fan of Blocked Reported. But I have this little sn- – so just I, I wanted like actual people who don't like me to talk to me. I want people who don't like me to talk to me is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> this is – you're like coming out as a – what is it? Masochism or sadism? I can't remember. Debate me, bro. Yeah. <laughs> it's your kink. Uh, yeah. So get called. Anything else for housekeeping or should we get back to, to Jacob Blake? Blockdownreported.org. Uh, okay. So where were we, Katie? We were talking about how this happened, how how everybody got everything so wrong. Including us. Yeah. And we should say, we should probably say, I'm sure everybody didn't get this wrong. I'm sure that some people got it right. Do you know anybody off the top of your head who got it right? Yeah, Scott Greenfield, uh, we'll include a link in the show notes. He had an early analysis that I thought got it right. Um, or if memory serves, it had at least explained why it would be tough to, to charge the officers. I think I saw an article in The Federalist. I skimmed it, but it was pretty accurate, if memory serves. I could be misremembering. Uh, but, but that sort of like gets to the problem here, right? That you had to go to The Federalist for anything like a you know, accurate rundown of this? Well, sure. And one of the problems there is that if it's if something like this is posted only in the Federalist or even a place like Reason, which isn't conservative but is libertarian and generally does uh, does really good work on police reform and, and issues like this, uh, people on the left often just discount it because of the source. So yeah, if you like if you're trying to argue with somebody that the Jacob Blake shooting was justified and your source for that is a Federalist article, a lot of people are gonna dismiss that out of hand. Yeah. And and I think it would be useful now that we've explained what happened to it wasn't as though mainstream outlets for the most part explicitly lied about what happened what they did was a lot more subtle and i think it'd be useful for anyone who's a media consumer to understand what they did so um let's get into that a little bit katie do you remember the the concept uh of moral clarity you're not a very moral person so i feel like this won't ring any bells for you not a very clear person either (laughs) it's uh 
this this came from Wesley Lowry. He's he's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and probably one of the most uh, celebrated journalists of our generation. I think he's a, a little younger than both of us, as it's everyone seems up. to be these days. I know. How dare he? he? He made his name writing for the Washington Post about police misconduct and criminal justice reform, producing some some really important work. So. In a June 2020 New York Times column headlined, A Reckoning Over Objectivity Led by Black Journalists, he laid out how this concept of like view from 50,000 feet, supposedly neutral objectivity had made it harder for journalists to speak plainly about life and death matters of injustice. Um, let me just read a little bit of this and, and you'll you'll see why in a minute. Neutral objectivity trips over itself to find ways to avoid telling the truth. Neutral objectivity insists we use clunky euphemisms like officer-involved shooting. Moral clarity and a faithful adherence to grammar and syntax would demand we use words that most precisely mean the thing we're trying to communicate. The police shot someone. In coverage of policing, adherence to the neutral objectivity model create journalism so deferential to the police that entire articles are rendered meaningless. True fairness would, in fact, go as far as requiring that editors seriously consider not publishing any significant account of a police shooting until the staff has tracked down the perspective, the, quote, side of the person the police had shot. That way, beat reporters aren't left simply rewriting a law enforcement news release. So, I mean, so what do you think about that just just in, in a vacuum? I think it makes absolute sense. I think that oftentimes, yes, uh, reporting on, especially in the immediate aftermath of something like a police shooting, oftentimes it does just become regurgitating uh, a uh, a press release in part because of just the speed that is demanded of, of people, of reporters, of bloggers, of whatever. Uh, this happens on Twitter as well, where going and finding out the other side, the other perspective is going to take time. It's going to be harder to have access to those people. So it's just a much more involved process. Um, and I, I thought he also made a good point about why we need to be precise with our language and not try to obfuscate something with terms like officer involved shooting. I get that. I do find it a little bit ironic though that later in the same in the same piece, he's talking about uh the the aftermath of the New York Times publishing an essay by Senator Tom Cotton calling for uh calling for troops to go in and and, and or the National Guard to go in and basically start doing law enforcement in the cities where rioting and, and looting were were uh, happening after, in the aftermath of George Floyd, but here's what how how Wesley Lowry describes what was happening himself. He says Cotton wanted to call in the American military, quote, in order to quell civil unrest at protests that, while at times violent, have largely been made up of peaceful demonstrations. Tom Cotton was talking about going sending troops in not because of peaceful demonstrations but because of rioting and looting. So I think to call that civil unrest also obscures what was really going on. Yeah, I mean it's not the clearest language and so more I mean more broadly I I wanted to introduce Lowry's concept not to drag him but Well no, I mean I think that what I'm saying here is that I agree with him that that like his to use his own term moral clarity is important but the question is whose moral clarity and yeah. he's and he and he's showing his right here when he refers to rioting and looting as civil unrest. Yeah, and um, I, I mean, I think what he's saying is basically true. And I would so there's all sorts of situations where I would totally be on Team Lowry. Like, um, if a news outlet publishes a sentence as like a 23 year old black drug dealer out on parole was killed during an officer involved shooting, you're obviously obfuscating some stuff because you're you're downplaying the fact that he was shot and killed, and you're unnecessarily mentioning his criminal past, which might not be relevant, or his race, which might not be relevant. I think there's a history of that kind of stuff. And like I said, 
I wrote about the super predator scare in my book, which which involved that kind of bad reporting and leads to some bad stuff. And and that stuff was like really bad and it left a mark. And I think it probably left a particularly deep mark on on some black people and some black journalists who were members of the group victimized it. But like you're saying, either the words we use to describe incidents matter or they don't. And if you look at the coverage of the Blake shooting, you will see that there is this chronic dishonest style of reporting that selectively picks and chooses certain details to give readers and listeners a certain impression of what happened. Okay, so do you have any examples of that? Yeah, I mean, one is you will endlessly see the phrase, like in the the first mention of Jacob Blake shooting, that he was, quote, shot in front of his kids. And like technically true. Technically true. When I plugged that phrase in Blake's name into Google News, I got like more than 360 results. So it's commonly used. But if that's all you say when you describe the shooting without also explaining that the reason police were responding so aggressively was to prevent Jacob Blake from kidnapping his kids, that's bad. If you say like saying he shot them in front of his kids without leaving out why his kids were there, don't you think that's like a lack of moral clarity if our goal is to explain the world clearly without euphemism? Absolutely. And it's it's obfuscating what actually happened. I didn't do a scientific analysis of this, but I do think the vast majority of the stories mentioning Jacob Blake being shot in front of his kids just left out the fact that like police said he was trying to stab somebody and that there's pretty good evidence he was trying to stab somebody. So, you know, let's take uh, which sentence has more moral clarity. Jacob Blake was shot in front of his kids or Jacob Blake was shot while police said he was trying to stab an officer attempting to arrest him. I I think if the goal of moral clarity is to not just provide factual details, but to give readers a sense of what happened, which I think is part of Lowry's argument, you know, you'd almost favor the second sentence, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's clear. And I'm not saying like that this is an easy call. And also like, especially in newspapers, you're trying to pack a lot of information into just not so many words. So it's tricky, but it just seems to be a very clear decision about what you put in and what you leave out. And I think that is solely to make the shooting look worse. I think that is either a conscious or an unconscious decision on the part of writers and editors. That's the side we're on. That's the side we're going to take. One other example of this is is constantly mentioning that he was shot in the back without including more detail there. Katie, what if I say uh, I shot you in the back, what does that make you think? Uh, you're an asshole. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But what does that make you think about the direction both of us are traveling or our physical proximity? Right. I was facing away from you, maybe running away from you. Uh, I wasn't – you weren't in any danger t- from me. Yeah. Yeah. And there have absolutely been cases of police shooting people in the back. Like it's a thing they've done and it's horrible. But in this case, it's a very weird situation where Jacob Blake has his back to them because he's trying to get into his car to evade arrest on sexual assault and domestic violence charges. And he's two feet away and they say he's turning toward him with a knife and and there's a kid in the car he might be trying to kidnap. Summing that up as saying they shot him in the back without providing those details leaves out very important parts of the story. I would say that that is not conducting journalism with moral clarity. Okay, so we have these details now. Do you think the problem is that these de- these outlets who reported all this stuff just don't know what happened, or do they know and they're and they're deliberately trying to to change the narrative? I think it. So I think coverage of this in mainstream outlets has been universally horrible. In the case that if you read an article since these reports came out, you just won't get a good sense of what what happened. The quality of the reporting and how bad it was varied a lot from from place to place. But usually what would happen is that in the most important journalistic outlets in the country, they would either leave out crucial details or they would bury them at the bottom of stories, often after quoting many activists just 
just repeating the claim that this was an unjustified shooting without providing any further evidence. Right. So it's almost the opposite of what happened with uh, with Lowry's example of uh, you know reporters regurgitating cop press releases. Basically, what's happening here is that reporters are regurgitating activist statements and family statements and presumably attorney statements. No, that's such a good point that I'm fucking mad at you. I didn't put it in my own notes because it's just literally flipping it around. You're regurgitating your and we're going to get to really bad examples, but you're just regurgitating the other side in exactly the way you would have regurgitated the bullshit police, uh, you know, press conference or whatever. Right. So there, there were. This was such like a big time-consuming area to try to analyze the the media coverage of this. I decided to narrow it down. Um, I really just focused on the announcement that the Kenosha DA wouldn't prosecute the cops. That was an important moment because that was when we had these two documents released, the Noble Ray report and the DA's report that laid out everything that happened. If you're a journalist writing about this at this moment, you no longer have any plausible deniability, you know, uh, pertaining to what actually happened, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I don't want this to be an eight-hour episode. I, I will include in show notes the coverage from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, some other outlets, uh, just so everyone can judge for themselves. Let me just talk about the Times and the Post. The New York Times article, it, it mentions the presence of a knife up top, but it doesn't give readers any of the details they would need to understand exactly how the incident escalated the way it did. It also includes the following line. The case incited emotions in large part because of the gruesome scene captured by a cell phone video. A black man being shot in the back multiple times as he moved away from the officer. Kitty, what's wrong with that? Well, <laughs> he wasn't he was trying to stab him. Right. So so let's go back to the exact report the Times is covering in this article. This is a direct quote from it. Both Officer Shesky and Officer Arena stated that in the moment before Officer Shesky opened fire, Jacob Blake twisted his body, moving his right hand with the knife towards Officer Shesky. Two citizen witnesses saw Jacob Blake's body turn in a manner that appears consistent with what the officers described. So at that precise moment, no, he's not moving away from the officers. Isn't that just, I don't think it was intentional, but how is that? This is the best newspaper in the country. How does that happen? Well, my suspicion is that they didn't read the report. It's hard to know for sure. I don't want to accuse like top journalists of doing that, but it's just the kind of detail that you you really shouldn't be able to get wrong if you if you did read the report. Well, and you see this in science journalism all the time and in business journalism and lots of different different uh on different beats where people reporters do literally just read a press release and report via press release instead of like reading, for instance, an actual study. And oftentimes, if you <laughs> you know if you read the study, what you can find is that it doesn't totally align up with whatever the like communications people in a at a university, you know, PR department actually write in a press release. Yeah, yeah, no, that's totally right. Like not reading source documents, I think, is sort of an endemic problem. Um, so, but the Times article was like Pulitzer worthy compared to the Washington Post. Oh, what happened? Here's the correction you can currently see at the top of this article. I'm trying not to laugh or scream as I read it. This is this is written after they release this report and announce why Jacob Blake won't be charged. This is written after everyone knows everything that we've spent. How long have we been doing this? Eight hours so far? Yep. We're everyone, Rogan, Rogan level. Everything we just said, everyone knows this. Here's, here's the um, – I mean obviously they don't know this because they didn't read the report. Here's here's the correction. Correction. An earlier version of the story incorrectly described Jacob Blake as unarmed. 
I mean, like, it continues. While his family has said he was not armed when shot by police, prosecutors on Tuesday said video evidence depicts him holding a knife. The story has been corrected. Oh, my God. So so there's another subtle thing going on there, which is the he said, he said. They don't. So everyone in the moral clarity crowd was like, if Trump lies, you have to call it a lie. You can't give the other side. You can't say he said, the other person said, but that's that's out the window. In much the same way, you're just flipping from taking the cop's words at face value to taking the victim's side at face value. It's that again. There's no debate over whether he was holding a knife. Jacob Blake said he had a knife when he was uh, interviewed by investigators. Yeah, but his family said that he didn't. Yeah, no way to know. I mean, the story, the, the first line of the story, a Kenosha police officer will face no criminal charges for shooting Jacob Blake seven times in the back. I mean, it's technically true, I suppose. But once again, it obfuscates what really happened. Also, I mean, this is not the most important thing in the world. They weren't all in the back. Some of them were in the side. Sure. Uh, which I guess does... You know, that is relevant in terms of whether he was twisting with the knife. Uh, so the article mentions a possibility he had a knife, but it immediately includes this line. Blake's uncle Tuesday disputed the account that he was brandishing the weapon, while an attorney for the family described the man as posing no threat. Later in the story, Jacob never posed harm to anyone, said B. Ivory Lamar, the family attorney. Lamar called the district attorney's claim that Blake had a knife a completely bogus rationalization of what was really an intentional act to shoot him seven times in the back. I, 30 seconds ago, everyone was complaining about why would you include, quote, saying stuff that we know isn't true. I guess you just throw that out the window here. Moral clarity only matters sometimes, Jesse. So basically, in, the, in this whole Post story, whenever there's something in the story that would uh, exculpate the cops, the Post instantly materializes a relative or an advocate for Blake to dispute it, making everything a he said, he said, even factual matters. Let me give one more example of that. Shesky's attorney said the officer fired because he thought Blake was holding a knife and that he was attempting to kidnap a child, a narrative Blake's father disputed. There's no misunderstanding. Shesky shot him seven times in the back, unjustifiably. Nobody's life was threatened. The only one's life who was threatened that day was my son, Blake said. So again, there's just there's no mention of the fact that the cops had every reason to think he was about to kidnap a kid who he didn't have custody of. Um, Jacob Blake's father obviously has a right to defend his son, and the Washington Post should obviously include quotes from advocates of Blake's. But again, a Washington Post reader will come away with a really severe misunderstanding of what we do and don't know about this case, because most readers are going to read news articles, but not dozens of pages of um, of official reports. Right, right. All right. I guess the, the last sort of – we'll wrap this up soon. But, but Katie, you've mentioned a few times on this podcast that there is – a pretty distorted understanding some people have of how often the worst acts of police violence, which is shooting unarmed black people, are. Uh, and there's actually an interesting survey released on this. Uh, it was released February of this year. And it, it showed that liberals basically overestimate the number of unarmed black men killed by police by an order of magnitude. So in 2019, that's that's the year they asked people about in the survey – uh, estimates we had suggested 13 to 27 unarmed black men were killed by cops. Goes without saying, still too much. Every murder is horrible when you think about the effect, but we're talking about statistics. We don't have great data. A lot of police departments like don't report this. The true number is probably closer to 60 to 100 killings of unarmed black men by police. Where do you get that 20- from? Uh, this is what the survey itself said. It, it's a very rough estimate. It has to do with the fact that we only have data, I think, from about a third of departments. So I think okay. they're just tripling it. So call it call it 60 to 100 killings of unarmed black men. This survey found that a third of very liberal people and almost 40% of liberal people thought that 1,000 unarmed black men were killed by police. That's 10 times the actual number. 
It's an order of magnitude. That's not surprising. No, to me I mean you've talked about uh, talking to people right. uh, who felt that way. Just go out onto a street and like find someone with a NPR tote bag and ask them how many unarmed black men are killed by the cops every year, and the number they tell you will will be a thousand. You could you could make some money that way as like a street hustler. If you, if you <laughs> it'll be like hey hey NPR <laughs> tote come over here make some money. I could do like a like Billy Eichner like man on the street, but only asking this question. Sorry, we 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 joke because it's horrible that people are this misinformed about a genuinely serious subject. But um, making matters worse, about 22% of very liberal people and almost 12% of liberal, pe- liberal people thought the number was 10,000 or higher. 10,000 unarmed black men or people, mostly men, killed by police every year. This makes me want to go to a DSA convention and start asking <laughs> people. Um, but I wanted to just throw to you on this because like – I think – tell me if I'm wrong, but I think this connects pretty intimately to coverage of the Blake shooting and and why everyone is incredibly befuddled about what actually happened that day. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of uh, bad information floating around, some of it based on bad reporting, some of it based on assumptions. And I think that the – I think that police shootings in recent years, police shootings of unarmed black people, although – Jacob Blake was not unarmed, take up so much space in the media and in the public imagination that people really assume that they are that these numbers are much, much higher than they are. Um, and then there's also the fact, and I've talked about this before, that you don't see this sort of coverage when the police shoot, for instance, white people. There's more there's more white people every year shot by police, but there's way more white people in the country. Right, right, right. Um, so and Coleman Hughes has, has pointed this out for every George Floyd there is an almost identical case of a white person being being shot, or in the case of George Floyd, not shot, being crushed by police. Um, and these, and, and sometimes there's a video of it, but it doesn't go viral. I uh, I saw this locally here in uh, Kitsap County, Washington, where I live. A guy was sitting on a bridge last year. Something happens. He's killed by the police. This makes almost no local news. And in fact, just a couple weeks ago, uh, the prosecutor's office declined to press charges against the cops. And once again, this was not covered by the Seattle Times, by KUW, our public radio um, station, by basically anybody except for the local paper, because it doesn't matter. People don't give a shit. And I think this is really unfortunate because it gives people false impressions of how often this happens who it happens to. It gives black people the impression that they are uh, they are at risk of being being killed by the police with every police encounter. Um, so, so this is just bad all around. And it's not just police shootings. Uh, you know, you can go back to the to the 80s and 90s. Like most famously, there's the case of Adam Walsh, who uh, was kidnapped from a mall and in, in Hollywood, Florida. And this and this led to not just massive media coverage, but the entire America's most wanted television empire started because of this. And it gave people the impression that these things are way more common than they actually are. That in turn changes people's behavior. Um, so, I, you know, I think that the answer here is a pretty simple one. I think that- Subscribe to Blocks Reported. Yeah. I think that when uh, when media reports on, on police shootings like this, they need to contextualize it. Wesley Lowry is responsible for this really invaluable database that's that's hosted at the Washington Post. We'll post a link to it in the show notes. And you other others too, but he played a big part in it. Yeah, you can see you can. Uh, it's a database of, of police shootings. You can look at. You can uh, select by race. You can select by year. You can select by sex. And you can. And it's it, it's shooting, so it's not comprehensive. There are other ways that people are, are killed in police encounters, although police encounters that 
Wesley Lowry probably wouldn't like that term. It's also it's also not comprehensive just because there's missing data, but but it, it's the best sure. we tool we have, uh, I think. Right. So so reporters could go to that, find the statistics, and every time you know they report on on something on a, on the police shooting of an unarmed black man, they say this is one of X number of cases where this happens annually, and I think people would be shocked by how low the number actually is. Yeah. I mean, obviously they would be shocked, liberals especially. It's funny when you said like, I I definitely agree, you should not scare people about bad events. And and we've made that same argument um, in the idea that there's like other kinds of epidemics of hate crimes that don't appear to be supported by the evidence. I actually, I do think the group that most likely thinks that police are running around uh, killing black people constantly with impunity is probably white liberals rather than black Mm. people. Interesting. Um, Okay. This is very long. Can I make one final point, Katie, please? May I? One more. One more. You'll give me one more point. One more. Um, actually, I, I do just, just generally speaking, it's not good to to present the world as scarier and worse than it is. The world is bad and scary enough. And I, I just think I, I was fascinated by the way Noble Ray himself was basically sidelined from so much of this coverage. Like his involvement as an independent consultant should have been a very big deal. He has decades of experience in law enforcement. He's, he's a veteran of an Obama administration effort on police reform. He's he's a true expert. He's black, which, which does matter. And I, I think it's was probably better to have someone who wasn't white in that role. The use of him as an independent investigator is to try to give everyone a relatively unbiased view of what happened. Um, If he thinks this is a justified shooting, that should nudge us toward thinking that it may have been a justified shooting. But the Times coverage totally sidelined him. Uh, They gave far more space to fairly random or tangential activists and family members who, who lacked any real knowledge of the case the Washington Post carried an AP article announcing the start of Noble Ray's investigation, but his name is never mentioned again by the paper. Do you think that would have happened if Noble Ray's report had said that we should prosecute the cops? Oh, absolutely not. According to a Google search, CNN, I don't think, ever invited him on and barely mentioned what he found, except in quoting someone else's reference to it and announcing his initial hiring. So you have a situation where a nationally leading police reform figure who was given basically unlimited resources to investigate and who's an independent voice in a way a DA might not be, does this big investigation and, and is ignored by mainstream outlets who are otherwise giving blanket coverage to this case. Isn't that pretty amazing when you think about it? It is. And I'm curious, like, did Fox News pick him up? You know, this seems like something that they would uh, sort of jump on. Black uh, black cop says that this was a justified shooting. No, interesting. Nothing on Fox News either. Do better, Tucker. <laughs> Tucker. Tucker Carlson, invite on Noble Ray, please. Anything, uh, I think this is our longest episode. Anything else, Katie? Sorry I talked at you so much. I know you like the sound. <laughs> well, thanks for for diving into this, Jesse. I definitely learned a lot. Yeah, I I, um, I was surprised after some of my Rittenhouse stuff how many people who are otherwise like smart news consumers, like just through no fault of their own, didn't know what happened. I'm sort of hoping this podcast, despite being 12 hours long, will, will serve that same role of just like... If if you know someone who is wrong about this case, just be like, listen to this. And obviously, if you guys think we got anything wrong, blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. If you think we're being too deferential to the cops, let us know. I would also love the ACLU to tell us what we've got wrong. We would have any anyone they want on as long as they have a substantive response. But I, I'm not going to hold my breath on that. Maybe Chase Changio could come on. Too soon, Katie. Too soon. All right, Jesse, anything else? No, that's it. Um, I would uh, I would highly encourage everybody who hasn't to go check out blockedandreported.org. We have done some really fun uh, primo episodes lately. We just did one on a very bizarre 
media controversy involving Kurt Eichenwald. Before that, we did one on a <laughs> on some infighting within uh, the Libertarian Party. It was very fun. So, um, so I think our Primo episodes have been good lately. Please come check it out, blockedandreported.org. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, the U in ACLU stands for They Won't Get Back to You. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you see a tall man in cargo shorts hanging outside your kid's piano lessons, don't worry, it's just Jesse. Jesse.